0: And Bruce Campbell was Rock (laughs) Sandstorm. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me as always is not Cecil and not Peter because Cecil has a private matter he has to deal with and Peter is still dealing with the technical issues that he had. So I have sitting in for this Glenn Criddle from all the way from the future.
1: The lottery numbers are 2, 5, 14.
0: And 20. You're going to hold the the Powerball for ransom, are you? I am. Son of a bitch. I can't give you that much power. Okay, Theresa May. <laughs> and we have Sarah Hanley, because this topic actually applies to some of her experiences.
2: You can call me Peasel or Cedar.
0: Okay. Well, before that, what you guys need to do is go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E. You will get 50% off of a single item. Three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free US shipping. Sorry Glenn. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Tonight what I want to talk about is how a movie becomes a complete and utter cluster. By that I mean there are bad movies made all the time. We know this. It's something totally special when a movie is so bad you can't imagine that this act that nobody stopped this at some point. I mean, we've all seen these movies. Sarah, I know you've worked on a couple of things that you just really didn't want your name on, didn't you?
2: I don't think that they uh, were capable of remembering everyone who was on some of those things. So, yeah, I'm I'm not too worried. I, I don't think anyone will watch them.
0: You worked on some vampire film with Kevin Dillon that you said, from what you saw was so bad, you never even wanted to see the actual released version.
2: Ah. <sighs> It's yeah. It it was you know from the ground up. You, you knew it wasn't going to be easy, and then it just got worse.
0: Glenn, you work in the theater. Sometimes mm. there's just nothing you can do to stop the train wreck that's coming.
1: No, I mean this is one of the joys of having something that is a collaborative effort. Uh, although you've got a director at the helm, the director's not always the one in charge, and sometimes they're the one responsible in, in other circumstances for these things coming collapsing down around their ears. But sometimes you get those absolutely doomed projects that you can see from the outset are just going to be painful. And there's nothing worse, I think, than than a live show for me when that When that actually happens, when you've got an audience sat there and you're seeing the look of despair and disappointment setting into their faces, possibly permanently.
0: I worked for 10 years in live television. I know exactly how wrong something can go, and you're just powerless to stop it. The best you can do at times is try to minimize how bad it is. (laughs) Yes. Damage
1: control is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And you think in the movies and stuff, you would have a lot more kind of opportunity to do that. You know, considering the fact that it's uh, something you don't see the final product uh, until much later down the line. But uh, some of these things really do find a way to have that, that sort of odor of crap permeate all the way through them.
0: Well, and the reason I find this topical right now is we are less than a week after the directors of the new Han Solo movie have been fired with only three weeks of photography left. And they've been replaced to the point where it's estimated Ron Howard's gonna reshoot up to 80% of the movie. And we already saw this happen with Rogue One last year. And you just go, how clusterfuckery does their version have to be for this to be the necessary step, you know? Oh,
2: it's a, it's a really dramatic step. It's a, everything up until that point, it, you have all hands just trying to keep their part of the wall up. Everyone wants to believe that they can keep the project together, that by, you know, supporting each other, that you, you can, you can make this a, a thing that's not going to embarrass everybody, but damn it. I mean, to, to just start from almost zero, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know how many of those people just on, on the basis of exhaustion will be able to go through that again.
1: Yeah, that's a real special one, that is I can't imagine the feelings that must be going through, not just the studio, um studio's head, that they've looked at this thing and gone, oh, my God, this is not working out to the point that they've literally pulled the ejector cord and gone, right, okay, we're more or less going to start from scratch. Is one hell of a decision and I think that's actually one of the things that movies have a real problem with There is such momentum that, that goes with the, with the production, particularly when it actually goes into physical production for them to turn around and go, this, this is unsalvageable for whatever reasons and to kind of go right okay just yep yeah, scrap all the millions and millions of dollars that we have spent on this we're going to have to do it again that's monumental you you can't i can't imagine what they saw in that thing that they they went to that kind of length
0: that is pretty rare but it's happening with another mainstream film as well Justice League. Zack Snyder shot Justice League, and apparently WB executives hated it. So they had him reshoot up to 60% of the movie, and it's still supposedly a chaotic mess. So Zack Snyder was fired. I know they're using the excuse he's taking the time off to deal with his daughter's suicide, but let's face it, he was fired and then Joss Whedon is brought in initially just to handle the reshoots, now they're saying between 60 and 70% of the movie is going to be reshot by Whedon. So they've essentially shot Justice League three times. Is anyone <laughs> going to be surprised when this comes out in three months and everyone goes, what the f*** was that?
1: I most certainly won't be. problem is that they've gone on such a... They've got so far down the road with this. Again, it's that whole kind of thing with momentum of these productions, particularly when you're talking about like extended universes and things like that. They've got so much momentum behind them that it's very difficult to change direction. And it's taken them to this point where they've even felt possible. It's possible for them to do that. So for them. This doesn't massively surprise me. The reasons for firing him, I think I, I tend to lean towards your opinion. I think this is, this was a good reason, if you like, in air quotes, for them to, uh, to finally sort of go to him, right? You've got to take a back seat at this point. I, I can't imagine how this is going to end up, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be, um, possibly just a big steaming mess and it's going to take him a, probably another movie or two. At worst, hopefully, to actually get themselves back on track. Although Wonder Woman was a step in the right
0: direction. With the with something like Justice League coming out in only three months, and them spending an estimated 50 million dollars to reshoot between 60 and per, between 60 and 70 percent of the movie with another director and writer, what the hell is this? I mean, what kind of movie are we going to get in November?
1: I think they're going to be scrambling very, very badly to actually get anything together, to be honest with you, anything that's um, coherent. uh, You can't just pull the guts out of a movie and then throw it back together and have something work. And I think the biggest thing is now that they've got one film under their belt, which is Anywhere near what fans wanted, you know, I mean, Wonder Woman, whatever we may think about that p- film personally, it's pretty undeniably a step in the right direction. It's a pretty solid movie in most respects. However, now we're going to go back to a Justice League film that is going to be pretty bloody awful, I think. I can't see how this is going to work out at all, but they can't, they can't just pause it they can't just delay it they can't do all the sort of stuff that most of these films would be able to do because then everything else gets shunted down the bloody way it's 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 one of the big problems with this whole kind of structure that they've got with these extended universes is it's a bloody great juggernaut
2: with inadequate breaks they haven't been happy with snyder since before they shot any of this movie they they were afraid that, uh, they wouldn't have time to switch out the director. That's why they still went with him. And then what happened? It would have been great if they had just, when they realized that they didn't like the direction it was going in, if they had just shut it down and then restarted it, or they started to shoot anything, it, it would have, we know now, saved them a lot of time and effort and money. They would probably still have their Batman being Batman from now on. There's, there's lots of... <sighs> DC is not known, DC and Warner Brothers, they're not known for their good decisions right now.
0: Well, but then you also have, and I think this was Warner Brothers as well, although it might have been Paramount. Have either of you ever seen the early 2000s James Spader, Angela Bassett, Lou Diamond Phillips movie Supernova? I haven't. It was started by one director, and then he was fired after his cut didn't work. So they hired another director to come in and reshoot 30% of the movie. Then that didn't work. They hired another director to fix the second director's mistake, fixing the first director's mistake. Then that didn't work. Then they actually pulled in Francis freaking Ford Coppola to try and edit this mess into something (laughs) salvageable.
1: Oh, man. I get get the image in my head of just editing room absolutely kind of uh, shoulder deep in coffee mugs, just (laughs) as he's looking at this pile of uh, film, just going, what? the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> we're, we're 80
0: million dollars into this movie. We, we have to find something salvageable.
1: Yeah. And this yeah. is the problem with films these days, isn't it? The budgets are so high. The stakes are, um, so critical with, with the kind of money that's involved that it's very difficult to change direction. Go, this project is unsalvageable. When you sink 80, 90, 100 million or more into a movie, what do you do at that point? I mean, you, you have to release it. At some point, particularly, like I say, with the, uh, with the whole kind of thing with extended universes and the scheduling that, um, that, that these studios have, they've, they've got such a problem with being able to kind of look at something and go, we can't go forward with this or we need to pause this, think what we're going to do. They can't do that. There's such a scramble to do these things between a director that's shall we say, miscast, if you like, for a particular series of films uh, or or a studio that has a very, very specific idea of what they want and they just don't seem to see eye to eye. Between all of these things that are going on and more, it's very difficult for for anyone to actually have any control of these things.
0: That's not just a big budget problem. Either of you ever seen the 2001 leet and utter disaster, Children of the Living Dead, which I swear I'm not making this up. John Russo says is the official sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Yes, I have. <laughs> Unfortunately,
2: I have not. But uh, you know, I, I go through. I want to see just a, a trashy zombie movie every once in a while. I haven't gotten there yet.
1: I'll do it. It's 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 the funniest thing. It's it's. It's it's The Room, but a horror film.
0: It's incompetent on every level. I'm going to read something here. It's a little bit long, but you people listening need to understand the, the depths of just how many things had to all go wrong to make this movie as bad as it is. It was directed by a man named Tor Ramsey, and he takes all the blame. So somebody on IMDb was calling out all of the difference, how the editing is terrible, the lighting is terrible, the acting is terrible, the sound effects, are how everything in this is wrong. Tor Ramsey issued an, an official apology. I'm going to read this whole thing. I said it's a little bit long, so stick with me. You filthy, scum-sucking bastard. I read your review on the IMDb of my masterpiece Children of the Living Dead and I am writing to let you know you can kiss my ass I know your way home from work bub and myself and the Abbott Hayes zombie will be paying a not so pleasant visit sometime soon I'm serious you and the other pole smokers who totally missed the point in my highly sensitive moving piece are going to pay if you knew the slightest thing about film you'll see the correlations with Bergman's Seven Seal Grim Reaper and Abbott Hayes not to mention the homage to D.W. Griffith's Intolerance and Keaton's Three Ages and the alternating storylines that jump ahead of course i'm kidding asshole don't get excited actually i'm writing you to offer my sincerest apology for the 90 minutes of your life wasted watching the movie children of the living dead i read your review on the internet and would like to thank you for understanding its worthlessness remember guys this is the director of the, ch- the movie okay you see i did in fact direct children of the living dead and you know what it really does suck so you're a filmmaker Quick, find another profession that causes less stress, like painting the tops of radio towers. But if you insist, perhaps you'd like to know some of the circumstances behind the amazing children of the living dead. Let me address a few of the specific areas you mentioned. One, we had two lenses, a 25-250 and an 18mm. Later, when I gently requested two more primes, a 50 and a 35, I was blamed for jacking up the budget with unreasonable demands, followed by seven question marks. Two, the choice of shots isn't as poor as the, cho- as the choice the editor who re-edited edited them made in choosing the shots. There's more to work with. He just didn't see it. Three. The robotic delivery of the lines was mainly due to the fact that all the dialogue was looped needlessly. Four. The reason the Savini stuff works better than the rest is that once Savini stuff was shot was when the Karen lunacy binge kicked into full throttle. He'll get into Karen in a minute. Five. Among the highlights of my brilliant cinematography team was the two most expensive days of production when they loaded five rolls of film backwards and shot it without realizing it, ruining the precious footage. I'm serious. Seriously, what can I tell you about the executive producer of Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street teamed up with the co-author of the original Night of the Living Dead to do what was described to me as an official sequel to Night of the Living Dead, but on the same level as Return of the Living Dead? Hell, who wouldn't have jumped at that chance? Unfortunately, I was to find that it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, and walks like a duck. It ain't always a duck. I was to find out later that the only connection this thing had to George Romero's great trilogy was John Russo and the words Living Dead. The executive producer's daughter, Karen Lee Wolf, Karen mentioned earlier, wrote a script so horribly incompetent that nearly a dozen writers and directors had walked off the project due to her obsessiveness over no changes being made to her script, in addition to being an untalented, inexperienced, uninformed, excuse me while I get my other list of adjectives, spoiled, immature, arrogant hack. Karen had never seen Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead, or even modern horror films like Scream. In fact, she thought zombie movies and Fangoria fans were stupid and wouldn't stoop to that level, so she created a level all of her own to stoop to. The producer of The Howling and the Lawnmower Man had gotten me into this thing, and he immediately began pleading with me to leave the project. Everyone that got within a three-mile radius of this unreadable abomination told Karen her script, to use Harry Knowles' words, sucked a big poodle turd. She refused to listen, threatening to fire anyone who questioned her script. Karen conned and manipulated her aging father into greenlighting her pathetic script, then Joe let Karen go to Pittsburgh to, quote, supervise. In her case, this meant threatening to fire anyone who changed so much as one word of her precious script. No shit. We were running interference on Karen sneaking around to do the gags with Savini. When actors told me the lines made no sense and wanted to work through the scene, Karen would not allow changes to be made. As for Russo, I was surprised to find him not quite the idiot internet sites make him out to be and certainly doesn't deserve to be fed to one of his own zombies as the prevailing winds usually concur. He's basically a decent guy who should be allowed nowhere near a movie set. Sadly, I must confess his reputation as a hack is well-deserved. He insisted I use his DP, a 63-year-old farmer named Bill Hisman, who played the cemetery zombie in the original Night. Bill's previous work was unwatchable garbage like Flesh Eater and Santa Claus, both movies produced by Russo. And though the Wolfs knew Hinsman's work, they told me I had to use him anyway due to Russo. I also had to use Russo's pal Bob Michelini as my art director, even though he had never set foot on a movie set and his experience was limited to doing sets for soft for a softcore porno mag called Scream Queens. Russo also insisted on shooting without an on-set art department, no insi- no assistant directors, no script supervisors, no wardrobe department, and no makeup department. Also no production manager. Basically, we had a nine-man crew made up of friends of Russo. Also, Russo said we could not afford a generator or anything stronger than a 4K. That's 4K is for lighting. I didn't shoot stuff this amateurish in film school. Here's the clincher. The budget for this thing was half a million dollars. Lunch money by Hollywood standards. My first film was $200,000. And when you get out of L.A., it's possible to get at least movie of the week type quality and production value for that type of money. But not if the producers scoop $120,000 of that half million off the top for their back pockets. And not if the producer, Russo, pays his friends ridiculously high salaries. I will always maintain that a lack of money is no excuse for poor production value. Deals can be made and favors called in. But if not, then you can get creative with the lighting and create your own scheme. In any event, half a million bucks is plenty of money to pull in a good-looking movie. Though I had an Emmy award-winning DP who worked for MTV ready to come on board at half his usual rate, they made me hire Hinsman who was almost four times what my guy was going to get. Next up, they wouldn't let me do it SAG, or even using out-of-town actors from L.A., so we had to cast using local actors from Pittsburgh. Except for Barrett Warland, who was Karen's Pet Project from L.A. Jamie was a non-SAG actress who who I had worked with before my first film. In any event, after five days of auditions, it became obvious I had very little to work with. Savini was great to work with, and I came up with all those gags he did outside while he came up with the ones in the barn. I wanted to do so much more, but my job came in jeopardy when I was accused of allowing Tom Savini to take over the movie. Later, Joe Wolf found what a name Savini is and said we made a mistake not building the entire movie around him. Savini saw the ordeal I was going through and and used to come by my room to make sure I was surviving. He was very supportive and told these guys they didn't deserve the job I was giving them. Regardless of the final cut of the film, I turned in a director's cut, which I felt worked on some level, and that at least wouldn't be an embarrassment to anyone whose name was involved. I emphasized the action scenes and whittled the long, dialogue-driven scenes down to a bare minimum. I still think it was a lousy movie, but it had a little something going for it, as I cut around some of the bad performances. Joe Wolf told me he thought he had a winner in the film with the cut I turned in, and others who saw it thought it was a workable zombie movie. What happened next was truly mind-boggling. Karen Wolf fired everyone in Pittsburgh, shut the doors on yours truly, and hired a new editor, supervised the edit, then brought in all the actors and replaced the dialogue in nearly every scene. In her re-edit, she put back in all of the droning scenes of dialogue, then added back in the dialogue of hers that I changed. Then, to cover the endless plot holes and the lack of structure, she added the loop dialogue in ways which, as you noted, are laughably absurd. For example, the first date you see in the film where Matthew takes Laurie to the construction site was originally shot as the final scene in the movie when Matthew takes Laurie to overlook his shattered dreams. When it was brought up that there wasn't enough character development in the relationship between Laurie and Matthew, they added in the ridiculous line of dialogue you heard and tried to make it look like a first date. The worst thing she did was in her butchering and slaughtering of the sequence with Savini. Firstly, the incessant mumbling made me wonder if this was a zombie movie or Savini doing Popeye. Secondly, the scenes were completely robbed of any suspense or or tension due to the unorthodox editing and lack of musical score. Originally, Savini's daughter was cast, and she turned in a terrific performance as a girl being pursued by zombies, who Savini saved by blowing up the car. She was also in the scene right after that with Savini saving her from the two oncoming zombies. Why she was cut is probably due to the fact that Karen simply didn't like her. As for the choices in editing, I wasn't present, so I have no idea what was going through this guy's head. Louis Showburne did the re-edit. I was never once contacted by he or Karen. Cover the many numerous plot holes that were in Karen's script, the two of these guys got together and put together scenes that were outtakes, drawn from the context of other scenes with loop dialogue dropped over. What is going through these people's heads is beyond me. But ain't show business grand? My feeling is that there is a movie in there somewhere in the dailies that wasn't the travesty you unfortunately witnessed. Sorry you had to sit through it. And as much as I hate to say it, it is my fault for allowing this to go on. I am apologizing because as director of the film, it is ultimately my responsibility to deliver deliver the goods. When circumstances present themselves that make it impossible to do so, my obligation to the craft is to leave the project. And He basically goes on a little bit bitching about Karen. But do you guys see how, with an insane writer who is the daughter of the executive producer, who is a hack anyway, and him making, he basically made this movie as a grift. It had a half million budget, and he took $120,000 of that budget for himself and then gave cushy jobs to all of his untalented friends at massive salaries and then left nothing for the film. This is far more common than people think it is.
2: It is, yeah. No, that, uh, that movie that you were referencing earlier, every... I was part of the art department, and there was only one person in the art department that got paid. Everybody else was doing it for credit, food, and a movie that they were going to be making later. The only person who was being paid was uh, the person who was in charge of it and knew nothing of art. He was the reason that the production got yelled at. We repainted a room that turned out to be historically significant. So that's fun.
1: Yeah, and you see little snippets of this kind of thing happening even in big films from time to time. This is just yet another example of certain people thinking of these things as being their opportunity. You know, it is when movie making is reduced to being a business apart from anything else. I mean, there's egos involved with it as well. What with Karen Wolf's involvement with the script and being so utterly unable to let go of any single word of that bloody script. Except and all if that you've kind seen the movie,
0: her dialogue is horrendous, and she's treating it like she's Patty freaking Chayefsky.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is a uh, part of the problem when, when the kind of doing something like a script it might look fine on paper but when it comes to realizing it it's it's not going to work and when i say it looks fine on paper it looks fine on paper to her i I get this sometimes even with my own writing when i write a script for uh for a video review for for instance it sounds it looks fine on on the piece of paper in fact looks fine on screen but the second you try to say it, it just doesn't work, and then you've got to go through that kind of painful process of going. As much as I like what I was trying to communicate, it isn't going to work, and you have to rewrite the damn thing, you know. And of course, when it comes to a movie, you're talking about a lot of people's work is on the line when uh, when it's uh, when the cards come down, you know. You can't allow ego to overtake. If you, I, I guess, with like Ghostbusters, for instance, the remake. There was a lot of that, I think, as a good example of what happens with a big movie. When egos take over, common sense and artistic judgment go right out the window.
0: Well, and when it comes to screenplays, what a lot of writers don't understand, and and, and this is something where certain people, like, like a Tarantino and a Kevin Smith and that, understand more than other people is, wait, the way you write is not the way people talk. How many times have you guys read a script for a project you're working on and you're like, okay, this reads fine. But then when you read that same dialogue out loud, it's like it's stilted and it seems scripted. People don't seem to understand that you have to nuance it. There's a reason there's only a few screenwriters who have it written into their contract, you cannot change a word. Patty Chayefsky and Harlan Ellison are two of those. You cannot change a word without their express permission. Do you know how exceptionally rare that is? And yet that's kind of the problem sometimes. The writer thinks their words are so sacrosanct that even if it sounds bad when you say it, like a perfect example is Babylon 5. You might like the story at Babylon 5, but that dialogue is terrible. It sounds, in all five seasons, it sounds like people reading a script, not like people talking.
2: People forget, and I say people as in even myself even uh yourselves you forget that when you put words down on paper you're describing everything within those words and the pictures in your head but if you're writing for the screen then half of that is going to be taken up by the pictures it's going to be taken up by the actors and by the sets and by the lighting so you don't write the same way for a book as you do for a screenplay because a lot of that you only need half of uh half of the description if you If you describe everything in the words, why do you need everybody else? And that we've seen that. We saw that on Babylon 5. I did catch a couple episodes of that. We've seen that. An even worse example, I'd say, would be the Twilight movies. Because, yes, those books are horrid and... The writer didn't know that. The writer got so pissed off at the first movie because things were shortened and things were changed that she actually did demand that after that that none of her, uh, none of her dialogue, if it went from
0: the book to the movie, would be changing. You have the same thing with the Fifty Shades of Grey movie. The first one went through three different directors because that horrible, horrible book that the author, she could not understand that her words were terrible. She would not let the directors change one word of the script. Have you read, looked at this dialogue? This is horrendous. This is like 12 year old girl writing class stuff. And you're like, no, it's genius.
1: Absolutely awful. And funny enough, that's exactly the example I was thinking of. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey is written in such a weird, stilted, awkward way that none of the characters, even in the book, as far as I can tell, uh, seem like human beings. But in her head, it seemed to be absolute gold and and because people lapped it up for whatever reason. When I think with the first one, with with Fifth Shade to Create the film, they tried to kind of write around that a little bit and change a few things, which is pretty much why the director that did that didn't return for the second one. It's a, that's a classic example of a writer who just can't la- allow the movie to be its own thing in any way shape or form you know i mean and, and that's the thing even even with the best book for instance you you you've got characters that don't talking in a way that uh, would be considered normal for people who would be on screen there's different um, ways that the words are phrased and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And and again, you know, going back to um, how my own experience of writing, the difference between what you write on the paper and what you actually say, sometimes it's just subtle. Sometimes it's just little things. Sometimes it's just changing the intonation or putting an extra word in or taking a couple of words out that allow the thing to flow. And if you don't have that, if you don't allow for that, then you're going to run into trouble because people don't speak like the written word. It's, it's very difficult to get that to work.
0: Well, it, you also have, this is a really a different topic, but where people speak in exposition dumps, real people don't walk up to some, like a coworker and go, Glenn, as you know, we have that big meeting today. That's for the benefit of the audience. And that is lazy screenwriting when they do that. When they have a character, anytime a character has to talk to another character and starts with, as you know, I immediately want to take the screenwriter and go, what the hell is the matter with you? And start slapping them. You have just such disagreements with the producer and the director. You just go, okay, the, the movie's dead. When you have the producer and the director trying to make two different movies, you just need to stop. You just need to quit. There's an unreleased Cheech and Chong movie out there. Tommy Chong directed a movie with him and Cheech, it was their comeback film, called Best Buds. Get it? Ha ha ha, Best Buds. We've never seen it, and we never will. He turned in his cut, the producer hated it. So the producer recut the movie, and Tommy Chong said, I will legally stop you from releasing that train wreck out as one of my movies. And he said, well, I'm not releasing your cut, your cut is terrible. So both of them are going, my cut is the one that works and screw you. So we have an unreleased Cheech and Chong movie sitting there because the producer had one vision, Tommy Chong had another, and we all lose.
2: Yeah, and unfortunately, it's a business, but it's also a collaborative effort. It's an art form, if you can remember to do that. And... It's, you get all of these people, and if they don't get along, then shit is going to go sideways. And it doesn't, doesn't even have to be the producer and the writer slash star. It could just be the costume person and the lighting person don't get along, and then suddenly you're watching this movie and you go, there's just something off about this. I, I, I don't know what it is, but it just feels wrong. But there, there's a, a lot more, a lot more of a human element in this business than people give it credit for. Because it's it's like a team sport. You, know, you need to have everybody trying to accomplish the same goal. So not not a whole bunch of zombie people on set, but you know, you, you're hiring people because they're intelligent and because they know what they what they can do and they they know how to get out of situations and. That is why you have people who will continually work with the same crew over and over again, but it is why stupid people will just hire their friends because they think this will be really fun and we'll all make money, and then in the end, I guess there's a movie too.
1: Uh, it's a very common kind of thing where you get a producer and a director who go at loggerheads. And I, I actually have a sort of personal experience of this in the theatre where I was working on a show, Guys and Dolls. And this wasn't a small production. This wasn't a rinky-dink little amateur operatics kind of thing. This was quite a big deal. A lot of money got sunk into it. The problem was the director. Um, but when we got halfway through the production process, pre-production process, the director wanted to go in in, in the direction that he apparently originally had stated. He wanted to make it quite a dark piece. Not quite as fluffy and as um, happy as some productions could be. Unfortunately, the producers didn't feel that way. So there was massive amount of tensions and it was only the fact that he was um, a West End director that um, he had the balls to say, no, this is what I'm doing. And this is the thing. A director, generally speaking, well, at least traditionally, what they would do is they would, they would bring their vision of that project. It would be, the project to be off to them, and they would they would demonstrate what it is that they want to do with it. I I want to make it dark and moody, or I want to do this, that, or the other with it, which is a bit different to how other people might have approached it. The problem is, producers are more and more, it seems, particularly with things like the extended universes and that kind of thing, are becoming much more in control of it. Directors are becoming very secondary. But the thing is, when you get that that kind of tension that's going on, they're pulling in different directions, and you can't have that so you do need people kind of agreeing and going in a certain direction of course there's going to be times when it's useful for the director to be called to task and say look this is going this is getting out of hand this is not going in the way we need it to go you have that negotiation but when that breaks down then you've got massive massive issues because you know then then the whole kind of um collaborative nature of the project starts to collapse
0: Sometimes, though, you have a director who maybe has come up through, especially, like, the new Hollywood era, and they think the director should overrule everybody else. Like, have either of you ever seen the train wreck that is the 1980 film Altered States? Oh, yeah. I've seen it. I, I didn't understand it. Well, that's because... Ken Russell is, is a hack who, thankfully, after this, was basically exiled to TV movie hell after a couple more disasters after. It was written by Patty Chayefsky, you know, of Network, and it was based on Paddy Chayefsky's novel, Altered States. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Chayefsky is one of those few writers that had it written into his contract, you don't get to change my words. Ken Russell came in and said, I'm the director. It's my vision, remember, of someone else's screenplay and book. And he started changing the script around to suit him. The studio said, um, you can't do that. And he's like, no, I'm the director. I'm doing it. They said, no, you're not. So he said, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to force them to allow me to change Chayefsky's story. First of all, the arrogance to think you can write a better, to rewrite Petty Chayefsky's freaking script. The, just the, 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 the grand mall arrogance of that. Cause I mean, there's a reason Paddy Chayefsky is considered one of the best screenwriters of all time. He's earned that. What Ken Russell decided to do was, he would have the actors read Chayefsky's dialogue, but do it very poorly. For instance, like, REALLY SCREAMING! Certain phrases. Or, saying things, uh, at, at one point he, inst- he instructed the actors to put some rubber bands in their mouths, talking, the dialogue was unintelligible. But then when he, he gave them his new pages and made them do it right. His I, his thought process was, this will force Warner Brothers, in editing, because all the Chayefsky scenes are worthless, to use my takes because those are the only usable ones. Warner Brothers didn't want to page Patty Chayefsky, the massive... Money they would have had to pay him by for Ken Russell changing his script, so they called Ken Russell's bluff. That's why characters will be just walking down the hall and they'll be like, Hey Bill, do you want a beer? Like that. Because oh. Ken Russell was basically like, I'm going to screw up Petty Chayefsky scenes, so they have to redo it with my scenes.
2: That's amazing. That, that's, uh, it's like he found out about that episode of, uh, Star Trek and he was like, ah. The Uhura kiss. I'm, I'm going to do that same exact thing. There's, there's no way that they will go with the really bad shit that I've done to these scenes. Oh, wait, they did. And now I look like an ass and everyone's angry at me and it's kind of apparent that I did this.
1: I think, uh, to some extent what problem is, is they hired Ken Russell. And I don't mean that in a bad way for Ken Russell, cause I actually happen to think he's, um, a, a very interesting director in, in a lot yeah, of ways. Okay. But, but problem- one, one of the
0: things you have to realize though, Glenn, is this was 1980. Mm. He was a hardcore alcoholic at this point. There are stories from the set. That he was so drunk, his ad actually shot some of the movie because he couldn't stand up on set. This was yeah. not seventies Ken Russell
1: anymore. Maybe, maybe not, but I mean, big part of the problem is you get someone like Ken Russell, and you've got someone with a very specific and very strong point of view of how a films being made, and without really knowing what the negotiation process for him um actually accepting the project would what was, then it's very difficult to. Work out whether or not that was, they got him on board because of his name and then said, no, no, you're going to do it our way. Or if he, he basically tried to change it in the
0: later part of it. You know, I mean, I'm not certain. One of the stories, well, one of the stories from the set, Joe Esterhaus talks about it in his book. One of the stories is Russell actually told them, I'm the director. The writer doesn't tell me what to do. It seems like he had that ego that the director is the king on the set. The writer doesn't tell me what to do. Well, when your writer is Petty Chayefsky, yes, he does. Well, yeah, yes and no, because you've got two very big names at that point.
1: It it basically involved in the project, and unfortunately, I think, fortunately or unfortunately, however it goes, the director is the one that is ultimately responsible for the project, at least should be, in my opinion. I mean, they are the one that is supposed to be kind of pulling together the vision of whatever it is they're trying to be making. You know, when, when you say that the writer should take over, at that point, generally speaking, the writer is... At least in my opinion, secondary to the director and they are there to kind of make alterations and stuff as, as needed.
0: There's a difference between as needed and I am in charge, so we're doing it my way. For instance, did you ever see the, the, the western, the old western TV series, the Cimarron strip? No, I haven't, no. Well, you know, it's an old 70s west, might even be late 60s. Harlan Ellison wrote an episode of that called Knife in the Darkness. And the way Ellison wrote it was basically he said, what if Jack the Ripper didn't stop ripping? He just came over to the, you know, to the West now and was doing it in Old West times. He he shot like the opening pre-credits teaser. He wrote it in such a way that things were shot in misdirection. They were shot in like an the reflection in an owl's eye in a puddle and whatnot. The director literally said, this is crap. Threw it out and shot it Jason Voorhees style, with the woman even, you know, tripping, and then the guy coming and appearing in front of her, and he shot it so pedestrian and mundane, Ellison was like, you know what, I don't even want my name on this. This director doesn't know his ass from his hole, a hole in the ground, yeah. and he threw out all the great stuff I gave him, because, and this director had been shooting westerns since the 50s, the director had told him the writer doesn't. He's talking about the what uh, is called directing on paper. You know when the writer puts, you know, lower angle and they they put what the camera angles should should be. He said mm-hmm. the writer is not the director. I am. So he basically shot it as mundane as possible to make the point. I'm in charge.
1: Yeah, uh, and that's that's the thing, though. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, at least how I feel, the relationship between a writer and a director. The, the the writer's power generally comes from uh, what they submit in the first place, and I think the director does have some duty to look after that vision and to not be untrue to that vision. I think, they, but that's the sort of thing that is decided at the point that the director goes, "I'm on board with this project," uh, rather than throughout the rest of the thing. So when a director get, uh, accepts a script or a screenplay, goes, "Right, okay, I'm going to make this movie," then subsequently goes, but I'm going to completely rewrite it without the writer's involvement or agreement, then I think there's an issue there. Because that's almost like a breach of contract to some degree.
0: Well, but then you also have things like Sylvester Stallone. He literally does not do any movie because he thinks he's a screenwriter. He rewrites every script that that he's made into a film to, quote, tailor it more towards me. Do you know how many writers have had their names removed from Sylvester Stallone movies because they said, I don't know what the hell that is on the screen, but that's not my script. That's Stallone's script.
2: Not a person who, even with failed movies, seems to notice that there are things that you just need to act as they are. It's translate it it is a translation you, you have the script and then it becomes a movie you, you translate it from one medium to the other so that you would like to think that there is a, a matter of trust there productions where things work well not any of the ones that we're talking about there is an element of that i mean sometimes you even have writers who want to work with certain directors because they like what they put up on the screen they like how it evolves
0: The Nutty Nut, or some people might know that as The Nut House. It was a 1992 Sam Raimi movie that nobody knows is a Sam Raimi movie because it's not a Sam Raimi movie. Directed by Scott Spiegel, written by Sam Raimi, Ivan Raimi, and Bruce freaking Campbell. They all took their names off the film because they were all fired three weeks into production, and Adam Rifkin, not a bad writer and director, was brought in to, quote, save the film, according to producer Brad Hyman. The film is an unwatchable mess, and you have to go, why did you think this was better? I mean, you have to wonder to a degree, especially knowing Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. You go, could their version have really have been worse? I doubt it. And by the way, it's really funny, since they took their names off of it, Ivan Raimi was Alan Smithy Sr., Sam Raimi was Alan Smithy Jr., huh. Scott Spiegel was Peter Perkinson, and Bruce Campbell was Rock Sandstorm. <laughs> Th- those were the pseudonyms they used on the final film. You know, even producer Brad Wyman, in retrospect, went, yeah, I made a mistake, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. But then, if you've ever seen The Nutty Nut, that's one of those movies that if you didn't know there was all these production problems, you'd go, how did nobody at some point go, this is terrible. We need to stop and rethink this whole thing. And then you find out, holy God, this is the rethink version. But <laughs> <laughs> that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier is
1: that momentum in, in something like filmmaking because it's such a scramble. And I think by the time people kind of realize that it's looking a little bit irredeemably crap, that there's a, there's a period of time where they're thinking, how can we save this how can we save this how can we save this until they actually sort of it's often too late and at that point it's um how can we salvage this
0: well you also have stuff like josh trank's fan four stick you look at that movie and even before all of the reshoots were done we were hearing all these stories about the chaos and how trank would not talk to his crew how he was isolating himself and you just said to yourself there's no way this is going to be a good movie. There, there just isn't.
2: I, even if half of the stories were not true, far too much of a person who is not ready for that position. Uh, you, you throw, it, it wasn't his first time directing, but it was his first time directing a large movie with such a large budget away from anyone he knew and he could not freaking handle it. And that, that, that is when you, I mean before that, but that is theoretically the, the job of the people who put the movie together. They're, they're supposed to know who all the players are. They're supposed to know their weaknesses and their strengths, and that's why you're hiring them. And if you need someone as a mentor figure on a movie, that's not a sign of weakness. Sometimes you can get amazing things. You, you can have this person who knows a, a lot of techniques and then you also have this person who just came off of their hot shit, uh, little movie. We do have amazing movies that come out of things like that.
1: I think it's a very typical kind of thing with modern Hollywood in particular. They tend to like to take inexperienced directors. And when I say inexperienced, I don't mean completely green, but directors who they...
0: Green from big studio films. Yeah. These guys that are, I, I,
1: I kind of get the feeling the studios look at them and go, these are guys that we can control. These guys that will be so in awe of the fact that they're working for us, that they will take uh, every word that we say as gospel. Suddenly you've got these people who are kind of in this, this situation where... All the freedoms and the creative decisions that they could possibly have made are are, are taken away from them. I kind of get the feeling this is part of the reason that uh, Trank basically went into meltdown. He was suddenly in charge of this behemoth. and Not only is that tensely intimidating, I would imagine, he's got these controlling forces who are basically saying, you're not going to do that, you're going to do this or that or the other. Uh, I can imagine that would be pretty soul crushing. I kind of get the feeling that's sort of where most of the trouble begun. But this is again, you know, this is a problem with producers and directors not working together, but working at odds with each other because they all want what they want. And I don't think Trank was in a position either mentally, emotionally or professionally to be able to stand up to those people. And I think that's the reason why it tanked so badly.
0: Sometimes you have a director who just does not know what they're doing. I don't mean on a technical level. I mean like on a professional level, like Michael Sarney on Myra Breckenridge. Michael Sarney would have the cast there, Waiting to shoot, and he, he literally at one point spent 16 hours shooting a cake sitting on a table because the lighting just wasn't right. That ended up on screen for three seconds in the movie. But he spent an entire shooting day and overtime making sure the lighting on a cake looked right, all while the crew, lately in makeup and sitting there, was just waiting. All day being paid because he needed this cake to look perfect. And that's when you should have gone, that's when the studio should have stepped in and went, we're not sure Sarnay is the right person anymore for this job. It even goes to something like uh, Ridley Scott, if you've looked at the behind the scenes of Blade Runner. I mean, he was actually fired at one point from Blade Runner, but he still kept coming to work. But he was officially fired because th- there was one, because you know how Blade Runner is very backlit and it's got lots of shadows? He did 80 takes of a dialogue scene because the shadows were not falling on their faces just the way he wanted. I get it, you want to make a great film, but there's also the concept of moderation, dude. 80 takes of a dialogue scene because the shadows of the fan aren't lining up right?
1: Yeah, there, there are times that the production company do need to um, step in and intervene. But I think most of those things are, should be less about artistic reasons than they are about practical reasons. And when you've got somebody who's taking forever and a day just to, like you say, shoot a cake. To shoot a freaking cake. Yeah. And then they've got every right to sort of walk in and go, look. No, this isn't going to happen anymore. This is it. That shot's done. Move on. Uh, because at the end of the day, the director is uh, an employee of these people. It's their money. It's their money that's going on, uh, going into this project, and to have stuff very frivolously wasted like that is unacceptable you know particularly considering the costs of you know people's time equipment hire and how long you got any particular place that you can shoot in all that stuff is it's extraordinarily expensive so yeah i think in that sort of situation the production company has every right to sort of walk in and go no you've got your shot move on and the director has to be able to work within the means of what's available whether that's Stanley Kubrick or whether it's um Josh Trank, you know, I mean that you can't walk in as a director and go, I want the world and I want it now. In fact, I think most of the best production, film productions have been ones that have had to face up to difficult situations and things that can't be realised and had to evolve and change to work within those boundaries. The worst films that I've seen, generally speaking, are the ones where they went, here's a billion dollars, have at it.
0: Let's end tonight talking about one of the one of the worst things you can do, especially in big budget filmmaking, and that would be Girlbusters. Girlbusters seem to have gotten worse the more negative feedback they were getting in the press that just made the director and the studio go, "Oh, yeah." You don't like these girls doing this stuff? No, we're going to do it three times as much. Oh, yeah? You don't like this aspect of the movie? We're going to do that for five extra minutes now. I mean, if you look into the production of Girlbusters, you go, this whole movie was made as a, oh, yeah? F*** you. Look what, how it turned out. It was a disaster. The thing is, Fig had the studio support because the head of Sony was the one telling him, let's stick it to all these people who don't like the movie already. You're just asking for a disaster, aren't you? Well, they, they
2: made it a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately. You you have these people who are like, well, I know you're not going to like it. If you start a sentence with, I know you're not going to like, you need to rethink that. Sell it to me. You know, uh, instead of just saying, this is Ghostbusters in name only and we're going to make references, that's not a way of putting it where anyone who cares about the franchise is going to want to see it. Even said it was a spin-off. If you said it was an alternate dimension. If you said this was a an Elseworlds tale. You know, it,
0: Except, okay Sarah, I think one of the problems was, and this we didn't find out till the Sony hack, but the, all those leaked emails between Feige and Sony, he literally said he made this movie to piss off fans of the original. This movie was made to be the anti-Ghostbusters movie. Well, then make then it a go, parody. What did, what did you expect to happen then?
2: Yeah, If, if you're doing it to take to task the the fans of Ghostbusters then don't say it's a Ghostbusters movie it's not like this guy hasn't done it before he did his satirical take on spy movies he did his satirical take on um blank and blank and and all of them is like and it has a female as a lead so it's not like we weren't expecting this movie as it was coming out and we were proven right on what we expected. It, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't even bad enough to be to turn around and be good. So that's disappointing in itself. I was hoping for an absolute dumpster fire train wreck because then it would be something that you could go back and you could watch it
0: again. I I, th- I think it's kind of the same thing with like the Bay Formers movies. You have to wonder at this point. Michael Bay is just making those to piss you off. Those movies are giant middle fingers to his critics, aren't they?
2: Uh, it's either that or he's working through something. I, I think that there's far too many directors who are working through either sexual or psychological things on screen, and I don't want to know that much about you.
0: I think Glenn will agree with me. Every Rob Zombie movie is clearly Rob working something through, isn't it? Uh, yeah, pretty much, yes. Girlbusters,
1: uh, well that was pretty much a vanity project from Amy Pascal from the very opening, um, idea. Well the first, from the first time it landed anyway near her desk. That was a big part of the problem. It's clear from the emails that she absolutely did not want a sequel. In fact, she worked very, very hard to kill any idea of, um, of it being a
0: sequel. She literally cut Ivan Reitman out.
1: Yeah, quite, uh, very much so. And, uh, the thing is for Paul Feek, for his part, was, took a lot of persuading to even get on that project. And he was kind of like, well, if I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it on my terms. To some degree, I can respect that. In other, in other respects, I kind of go, it's, it's an established film world and perhaps you should respect that. But that whole debacle was just one thing after another of Sony going, we're right, you're wrong, we're right, you're wrong.
0: Sony kept doubling down on the criticisms, going, you call that a criticism? Well, now we're absolutely doing that in the movie. Yeah. It, it was, that was Amy Pascal. She was so defiant about the PR, that she almost made this movie to be to be a middle finger. I I think it became that eventually. I think the project
1: was very personal for her. There was a certain amount of uh, gender politics, apart from anything else which was involved with that film, that she did not want to let go of. That was the problem. It's not the kind of film where gender politics really has any kind of um, particular place, certainly not in the production of it. That was such hubris on her behalf and on Sony's behalf and then eventually on Paul Feig's behalf that they took any kind of um, wariness about that uh, film. You don't trust us. You're a misogynist. They shouldn't have done that in any way, shape or form. They, they should have worked with the fans to some degree and went, well, this is kind of partly yours. I mean, the only reason Ghostbusters exists as a franchise was because the fans really adopted it. You know, that it's them who loved it, them who were the potential audience for it. And Sony kind of went to their potential audience, their biggest potential audience, and went you're absolutely wrong about this. You don't know what you're talking about. Of course, that's going to rub the fans up the wrong way. Like Sarah says, it's, it's a movie that is just meh. You know, it's, it's not good by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not so bad that it comes through the other side as being even entertaining. It's uh, what? Nearly two hours of blandness.
0: There are three freaking dance sequences in it. And, I don't know the actual runtime, but Melissa McCarthy bitching about how many prawns are in her soup. I swear that that scene's a 15 minute long scene because that's what it feels like. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a film with an awful lot of padding and an awful lot of bullshit that it didn't need it.
0: The final question would be, when a movie is as bad as, say, Supernova, Nuthouse or girl busters or anything like that why why don't you think we get more tor ramsey style apologies do you think it's that whole i still want to have a job next year i might have to work for these people again i just found tor ramsey's apology to be honestly refreshing It, it made me understand why that movie was as bad as it was you know I, I think that it was just
2: happened to be the the perfect combination of these are people that he would never want to work for again they're people who obviously did not care about the movie who uh hurt both him and his crew you you could argue financially but but in the business that they were indefinitely it, it hurt their reputations I I would like to to see it more often when uh, when something like this happens, but, uh, but sometimes it's not as clear cut. Sometimes if you're working on a larger production, you're not quite sure where, where certain stupid ideas come from. Or a person who has the stupid idea, let's say is in charge of, uh, the, the movie Wing of marvel and uh and you have to wait for them to step down from that position to say anything because yeah, you could say it and you could put it up there and and but people might might not believe it they they might be uh too much of a of a fan person
1: I wish that uh more studios in particular would give um proper apologies for these kind of things. I wish that um directors. Feel able to. I think there's a combination of things that's going on. Apart from anything else, there is the collaborative nature of it, which kind of gives an easy out for people's pride. And it's not easy to go out in public and say I screwed up. These were the reasons. And then for the people that they that that may concern for them to go, yeah, maybe we could have handled it better. Maybe we could have done this, that, or the other. There's a lot of very public uh, scrambling to try to save face. Because of the, like I say, because of the collaborative nature of it is very difficult sometimes for someone to accept their role in that kind of stuff. What Tor Ramsey did in that apology was interesting. Cause I mean, not he burned any, a lot of bridges too. He, he, he kind of did. Yeah. But I mean, he didn't just blame everybody else though. He also blamed himself, you know, so it was, it was a case of, look, this whole thing just came crashing down. It was just madness and he doesn't hold himself. To, uh, be scot-free of any kind of blame. That's a big thing to do.
0: That's something I wish more directors could, could embrace. Like, you know, recently at Alien Covenant's very critical drubbing, Ridley Scott blamed the fans for not getting. (laughs) And that's, and that's when you kind of have to pull back and go, alright Ridley, we need to have a talk. You made a terrible, terrible movie full of insanely dumb decisions, and it's the fans who just don't get your genius?
2: Uh, He should just write books and not have all of these other people have their jobs on the line for him.
0: On that note, this this show is also a collaborative effort. Where can we find Sarah Hanley?
2: You can find me generally in the Southern California area on the Twitters and the Facebooks, and I uh, will we'll be spending a lot of nights drawing So.
0: And Glenn, since you are technically about six hours in the future from me, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at
1: com and at uh, YouTube as LampyMan101.
0: And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.